Spite of Courage is about ordinary people aspiring to live their best life by overcoming vulnerability and fear. It's about finding our courage and sharing our stories so we can be who we're truly meant to be and discovering in the process that we're a lot more similar than we are dissimilar. To listen, go to biteofcourage.com or your favorite podcast app. everyone. Welcome back to Bite of Courage. My guest today is Elaine Gabalak. Elaine is from Long Beach, Indiana, and at the age of 14, while swimming with her brothers and sisters in Lake Michigan, she experienced her first epileptic seizure and almost drowned. Here to talk about it today, we'll also discuss how epilepsy became a call to courage for her and how adversity ultimately helped her to accept life on life's terms. Hi, Elaine. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Mo. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy you could be here, too. My privilege. Before we get into your story, I'd first like to ask you what your definition of courage is. Well, courage to me is an attitude. It's, it's a daily thing, independent of circumstances. It's more like it's a willingness to do what's right, what's necessary. Scared is what you're feeling. Courage is what you do anyway. Taking action when you don't even know what the outcome's going to be. So I know your first seizure occurred when you were 14. Can you take us back to that day and describe what happened? That day actually was incredible because I went swimming with four people. My older brother, John my older sister, Patty, and my older sister, Judy. And she brought one of her friends, Kevin Albaney. It was a really wavy day, and we all went down to the beach to swim together. And everything was a day like any other day. But all of a sudden, I started to feel really strange. And then I became disoriented, and that just got worse and worse. I looked up at the sun, and it, it kind of looked like it was spinning in the sky, so I began spinning around in the water trying to make it stop. At that point when you're going through something like this, it's hard to put into words, but your consciousness is altered before things go black. And it's the scariest part, and it's really the hardest to put into words. I did lose consciousness in Lake Michigan on that wavy day, and I am here to talk about it. Because as soon as they were able to spot my body in the water... Kevin Olvaney, I guess, he reached me and threw me over his shoulder like I was a rag doll, and he brought me to shore. And then my brother John and sister Patty and Judy, well, they, they met their call to courage, and they saved my life. I wasn't breathing, but CPR brought me back. And you probably didn't realize then that you had had a seizure. Did they think that you had gotten caught up in the riptides? Well, I did after I lost consciousness. The undertow's always there, so that's always there to pull you away. And the question was, when they got me out and after they restored my breathing, why would she have lost consciousness? And I had no idea, really, at what point I woke up in the emergency room. And I woke up, <laughs> I woke up in the emergency room hearing a doctor tell my parents, to expect some brain damage because there was a really great probability 
that I went without oxygen for so long. And I remember making the thumbs up sign. I remember my mom just, her head collapsing on my dad's chest in relief. That's my memory anyway. But they did make a diagnosis. I remember starting seizure meds right away. So while you were still there at the hospital, they made the diagnosis? I think they must have made a tentative one. I don't know if they did an electroencephalograph then. That's when they... Remember, this is over 40 years ago. I don't know at what point along the line it became the official diagnosis, but I do remember starting seizure meds right away. And what was the diagnosis? They called it, you know, when I went to a neurologist in Chicago, Dr. Melchap, and he made the diagnosis of idiopathic epilepsy. Idiopathic means they're not really sure what's causing it. So I know I had to go back for a hospital stay at what was then Chicago Passive and Hospital. And they put me through a battery of tests while I was a junior at Lalamere at high school. They wanted to rule out the possibility of it being a brain tumor, among other things. It must have been a really scary time. How did you feel when you heard the diagnosis? Oh my gosh, I was so shocked. It was, it's like driving a car down the road and all of a sudden you get broadsided. It came out of nowhere. I think everybody facing disease has a big adjustment to make. And I was in denial for a long time. I just wanted the old me back. That just wasn't happening. So as you can imagine, I was really sad and I was really angry. I think one of the things that makes what you were diagnosed with so difficult is that it's unpredictable, right? So you never knew when you might have another seizure. Did you ever feel like you were trapped inside your own body or living in a constant state of fear or high alert? Well, that's the thing. At 14, I just wanted to fit in. And the last, if I was going to stand out in a crowd, I didn't want it to be because I was having a seizure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. My first question when I regained consciousness was always the same. It was, who saw me? Who saw me? I was so embarrassed and shamed. I didn't know how to cope with this. And I felt a lot like a deer caught in the headlights, knowing, looking at a truck that's going to run it right over. And truly, truly, it is a violent thing to experience a grandma seizure and my confidence took such a hit. Epilepsy, and unfortunately, I think it's just because I was so young. Epilepsy made me feel unlovely, unlovable, and the disorientation I experienced made me feel like I was stupid, honestly. It's quite a challenge to accept the unacceptable. And that's such a critical stage of your adolescence when we're all feeling those feelings and the hormones and wanting to fit in and then to have a diagnosis like this I can only try to imagine exactly and you know the I think the crucial thing was at that point when I received the diagnosis I couldn't separate myself from it all I could see was that I couldn't see past it it became unacceptable to me so I became unacceptable to me and when you mentioned unpredictability and being trapped in my own body, that's very well said. 
I don't live under that threat anymore because of all the all the strategies that I put into place to manage it. But before that, the randomness and the the whole unpredictability of seizures meant accidents, and those happened anytime, and they did. I had falls, concussions. Eventually, my shoulder dislocated every time. And once I was swimming in another state, I was swimming in a swimming pool, and I woke up in another hospital emergency room with pleurisy. I was hardly able to breathe. My mom was there. Oh, my poor parents. I've had more than one close call. How did you find the courage to manage the fear and the unpredictability part of your life? The thing that, at least for me, what was important to realize is it looks a real enemy here. The thing about pain is that it can really cause the mind to turn in on itself. And the trouble with that is that I lose perspective. And I hardly knew it was happening, but perspective is like a lens that I see the world through. And anger and shame and most of all the fear just drain the joy right out of my life. Fear is the real enemy. It interferes with any constructive response to any challenge. And that's why Bite of Courage podcast, I think, is so important. But as far as me, when I am managing fear and unpredictability, I can't summon courage and to meet fear from a, from a place of emptiness. There has to be something bigger than fear. There has to be something bigger than anger. What was that for you? Was there something in particular that helped you sidestep that anger? In order to go to the distance, that strength for me came from hope. And sometimes the biggest part of the struggle isn't really the thing itself. It's the seizures, that's the physical part, but there's a whole emotional component too and spiritual component too. I was so mad. I was mad at God and living with fear and anger. And those two things really, really sapped me on my strength. In order to deal with this thing, I needed to make peace with myself. And, you know, that seemed impossible to heal, to even pursue healing. I needed to have the will to fight, to not give up. Now, I had no idea how much I needed help and how much I needed the unconditional acceptance from outside my family until I ran into that my junior year of high school out in the middle of Indiana nowhere, a very small high school built around two small lakes. I met I met a young man and hold on, let me pull it together. Take your time. I met a man, a young man named Matt Rocher. <laughs> And the experience of his his friendship over the period of two years, it, it shifted my perspective on how I dealt with this disease. It was like nothing changed, but everything's different, if you know what I mean. And you may ask, well, how did his friendship give me courage? Well, looking back, I've, I've had lots of cups of coffee thinking about that very thing because if I could bottle it, I'd, we'd make a million bucks. How did this friendship change everything? It gave me courage. The whole community 
at the high school I went to junior and senior year really did accept me as I was. Really special place and that that was a special community. But there was something about Matt when he saw me, it was like he he saw me. He didn't even he didn't see my disease. Could he not see my disease? I felt like it was the elephant in the middle of the living room. I saw your heart. But it's the thing that people see first when they look at me. But the magic of him, the, the, the important thing is that when he looked at me or when we, when we were together, it wasn't like he was trying to see past the elephant. He didn't see it at all. And then more incredibly, I didn't either. I felt like myself again. I felt like for the first time I was separate from my disease and that experience, that experience was electrifying. That's when things really shifted and that's when I allowed myself to hope again. I found this great quote by A.J. Cronin, said it best, says in the midst of winter, I found within me invincible summer. And that invincible summer is hope. And that's what fueled me to move forward. And that was the beginning of a journey that took me ultimately to New York City to where neurosurgeons implanted a medical device in my chest. It's called a vagus nerve stimulator. And that's what's made the biggest difference for me in managing this disease. And what, what does that do for you? It's a medical implant and they um, connect it up to your vagus nerve and it sends electrical impulses up to your brain. And they don't know really why this works, but it works. And you can set it on different settings and they can, you know, customize it to the point where it works most effectively for you. But that electricity going up to my brain, controlled, it controls my seizure activity. And I couldn't tell you how it works, but I'm glad to say it does. So you have control over that now, and you, when you feel a seizure coming on, you're able to monitor no. it that way? No. I now I've reached, it's like I've reached a safe harbor. Now it's manageable. I've realized the impossible dream, and that's my message, that nothing's impossible, and even, even the most terrible can be surprisingly useful to others. And that was that happened when you were still at Lalamere? No. Things had to get a lot worse before they got a lot better. The thing that actually carried me to New York to finally receive the medical implant, the circumstances, well, I'll tell you a little bit about it. You know, sometimes life takes whatever weak spots we have and it just makes them even more pronounced or more difficult. And the thing that happened was my eight-week-old daughter came down with spinal meningitis and she was hospitalized for that. And we did not expect her to live. And at the end of that, I was really at a low point as far as my resources. And it's a miracle she's alive today. But at the end of that, I was just, you know, you're a mom, you love your kid, and to go through the experience like that is just devastating. Pain and suffering are one thing. Watching your kid go through it, that's, we're talking a whole new level now. So, she just barely survived on a night that I surrendered her life. I believe, and this is 
in my heart, I know God cured her. He brought her back, and that's why she's loved life today. But at the end of that experience, well, I was like at negative 20. I was running on fumes. And I went in, and I, here he is, this poor baby that's eight weeks old that somehow managed to survive that. I was bathing her, and I had a grandma seizure and fell in on both of us, and almost, <laughs> that almost did not end well. So when I woke up, when I came back to consciousness, absolute certainty came into my mind. It was, if you don't do something soon, somebody's going to die. I know that sounds like a threat, but it was more like it was just certainty. And it was also an initiative to take action. So I went right to my computer and I looked up who is the best neurologist in the country. And this guy's name, you know, Dr. Douglas Sabar, he had just won some kind of award. And this neurologist practiced medicine in New York Presbyterian Hospital in Manhattan. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, well, I'm going to call him. So I did. I explained my story. I'm a mom in Columbus, and I, if, if we don't do something soon, I think something terrible is going to happen. He said, sure, I'll accept you as a patient. Do you mind participating in a study? I guess they're affiliated with, with Columbia University. I said, sure, I'll do that. So he said, come on down, but I had to get there. I put my house up on the market. My husband quit his job. I pulled my kids out of school. And the very first person who looked at it, bought it, and gave us the price that we needed. We packed up everything. We crossed country, headed to New York. And here's just a moment of gratitude. I'd like to express my thanks, my deepest thanks to my sister Judy and her husband Gotham for hosting me and my entire family that year so I could seek healing because otherwise I couldn't have afforded it. Really amazing hearing that story, and I've said this on the podcast a lot now, but I firmly believe that whatever one's concept of God is, it's a powerful source of goodness that comes to us through other people. And That's exactly what happened to me. We have just no idea. It's the power of these connections with others that lift us up, that give rise to our voices and our hopes, and allows us the capacity to tap into that courage because we have those outside allies that shine their light on our brokenness and the cracks where the light gets in. Like Judy, like your family, like Matt. But it's also these very same connections that make us feel most vulnerable. And I think that everything is relative. When pain and suffering is at its greatest, we're also at our most vulnerable so our call to courage needs to be even greater. And because of your love for your child and your husband's love for, for you and your child, you were able to do for your family what other people did for you, shine a light. That's, that's right. That happened because I was prepared to do whatever it took. And it was because my community was willing to support me in that effort. Judy and Gotham were absolutely critical piece to this because I don't know how else that would have happened. Yeah, one of the things that I try to remind myself of when I'm, I'm feeling really vulnerable is something Brene Brown says, which is vulnerability sounds like truth and it feels like courage. And that's, that's what this feels like for me. I absolutely agree. I mean, looking back now, 
if I could change anything, would it? I mean, I wouldn't have chose this for myself, but I can honestly say now that I'm grateful for the experience of epilepsy, which is an amazing statement in itself. I'm grateful for that experience. Let's just call it adversity because everybody can relate to that. And for me, the path to becoming happy, it just winded through this patch where I was perfectly miserable. And really, it's only then that I learned to pin my faith on things that, that can't even be seen. It's only then that I look outside myself for a source of power to feel me through the toughest day or on to live a meaningful life. That's what I wanted most of all, to be happy and to live a meaningful life. Who doesn't want that? We're all the same that way. But without adversity, I, I would have spent all my time and my energy and my resources running around trying to get the next thing that I want that never satisfied me for any length of time or to build myself up in the world's eyes. Honestly, I try to look really good on paper, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but as a teenager, if I didn't have epilepsy, I, would, I wouldn't have even experienced the miraculous change that Matt Rashford somehow brought about. I wouldn't have learned about the profound impact that we all can make on each other's lives. Man, that's a really sobering realization. Just recently, Melissa, just since you've asked me to do this podcast, I woke up because I was thinking, maybe, should I, should I not? But then it occurred to me that maybe the area of my greatest vulnerability, maybe that area, maybe that's the area of my greatest potential. And that was just in response to considering this opportunity to speak here today. Because, you know, it's, it's awkward to step out and to do something <laughs> yeah. But I will say adversity taught me humility. And, and don't, it's so underrated, but it taught me how to ask for help and how to take care of myself, how to have compassion for other struggles. And again, to look outside myself for the power to carry me through challenges I simply cannot face on my own. And, you know, this completely sounds crazy, but now I have the capacity to enjoy the smallest things that before I wasn't even aware of. To catch the good that's within one's reach is the great art of life. I truly, truly believe that. I do too. And I think that when we can get to that place of recognizing that critical moment of vulnerability is our greatest moment for change, that it opens up a whole new world to us because we become self-aware. And when we can elevate our thought to a higher place, happiness or contentment or whatever you want to call it, we do that because we're willing to get honest and surrender. And I think the true self is always with us and always grateful. It just gets mired in layers of living, living up to certain expectations right. and societal norms that make us feel judged and less than. And it's only when something happens to shift our awareness into the present, when we can sidestep anger and move into a place of peace and gratitude that we can start to feel hopeful again. 
and our thoughts sculpt our mind and our behaviors follow. And when the pain of whatever it is that we're struggling to get through can be transformed into gratitude or joy or hope, I think we could all use a little bit more of that. So thank you for the reminder. It's a pretty powerful one. That's a really empowering idea. Life is what our thoughts make it. We are not defined by what happens to us. We're defined by our choices, by our attitudes. There's always a choice. Healing is a choice. Faith is a choice. Courage is a choice. All of it, all of it is inspired by love. It's, it's great to think that adversity, that there is no pain on earth, that heaven can't heal if we're willing. Once we really, really buy that, really believe that, it's like, oof, it makes a whole lot more possible. It seems like it gives me freedom to try a whole not a lot of new things because I may fail and that's okay. They may, who knows what, what kind of response I'll get when I do. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. You know, courage becomes possible when we realize it's all a choice. Just move forward. It's all good. It's all learning. It's all good. And one of the things Brene Brown has said, she thinks of courage as being a skill set. And I never thought of it that way until she characterized it so. And that's had such a positive impact on me because in a world that tempts me to be something that I'm not, I need courage to follow my heart and to trust my own voice. So thinking about courage as a skill set gives me greater awareness and stronger convictions about the things I do to establish my boundaries and to practice self-care every day. Can you share with me some of the things that you try to do every day, good habits that help you to build your courage as a skill set so that you can follow your heart and trust your own voice as well because clearly you learned how to manage that very well. I like the idea of considering courage as a skill set because it seems more like we continue to reach for something that we choose. You know, it's more like an attitude that we're pursuing to make a part of our daily lives. It's not just like one of those things that oh, we're going to need to call on maybe once or twice in our lives. Some things are take extraordinary courage, but this needs to be implemented on a daily basis. I think that to build courage as a skill set, well, I have to charge my physical battery and my spiritual battery every day. And I have a variety of things that I do that work for me. I mean, every, everybody's different, and, and I think we all replenish ourselves in different ways, but... I really like to pay attention to, well, I have to. I really pay attention to the quality of my quality of sleep, and I pay attention to what I eat. I try one new thing every day. <laughs> this counts for today, maybe for tomorrow, too. <laughs> I mean, if, even if it could be just little things. It could be that just trying new food, cook something new, even if I burn it. I like to talk to one new person face-to-face, and ideally, I'd like to speak honestly about what's important to me or what I think what others might find useful, and I definitely, I practice gratitude. I literally take the time to mention three things that are good about my day, every day, anything, anything that brings me into a greater consciousness of the good that surrounds me. It, it just charges my battery. So, so I have something to draw from 
when I need it, when I need that courage. It seems like the more I throw myself out there, the more I grow and the more confident I get to take the next step like this right here, right now. I love the idea that you are very deliberate about trying something new every day. It's great advice. In hindsight, is there anything you can share with people who suffer with epilepsy that might help them to find the courage they need to ease their suffering and help their healing process? Things you know now that you wish you would have known then. I think that any chronic disease can just be relentless and break you down over time if you don't push back against it. So when I was struggling to recover after a seizure, I think in my hardest moments, I'd hear the nagging voices of discouragement. I'd, on my worst day, I'd hear this. I'd hear, it's never going to be any better. It's always going to be like this. I mean, when I was hurting my worst, it seems like the voices of folly are just ringing in my ears. And I think that part, that was worse than the actual physical recovery and the experience of a grandma seizure. So my advice, my advice, and what I've learned over the years, don't listen to that. <laughs> Talk back. Answer it with the voice of faith. I do. I talk back. I say out loud, I don't know how, but it's going to be okay. I don't know how, but there's a solution over and over. I say fear is useless. Trust is what is needed. I just say it out loud. I've got all these little lines that I adopt. They're real short that I, that I say out loud just to affirm my intention and to speak back to, because I'm not going to sit there and just listen to negative negative thought processes as I'm, as I'm going through a, a physically vulnerable time. So believe in the solution before you see it and recognize the real enemy. The real enemy is fear. It isolates us. It tells us we're different. It, it, it turns our minds inward. Fuel hope, fuel the dream, whatever your dream is. You have a dream. You want to be your old self or feel like your old self. You want to, whatever your dream is, just feel that dream and never give up and get proactive. That worked for me. Mm. Set your intention down. You can't really move toward a goal if you don't really know what it is. I, I would tell myself just little things like I move forward in safety, surrounded by love. God eventually makes everything work to our good so we can pass on the message. I would just say things like that. Oh, pray. It can't hurt. It can only help. So when you need strength, ask for the strength when you need it. And we all need it. And on the physical side, I found that food is more than fuel. It is medicine. It definitely is. I now view my body as one big ecosystem where everything's all interconnected. And I pulled the camera back and I look at myself more holistically in terms of taking care of myself physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. So in order to do that, do more of what you love, whatever it is. Is it gardening? Is it baking? Is it reading? Whatever that is. 
find time in your day to do more of that. And oh, find the right person to work with, the right doctors. There's a lot out there, not just the ones that you go and visit, but the ones that you can access online. The guy that made the biggest um, impression on me that I have a dream that I want to go see, his name is Dr. Mark Hyman. She's the director of functional medicine at the Cleveland Clinic. Oh, yeah. I listen to his podcast all the time. I follow him. I follow him faithfully. Yeah. Yes. And pharmacies. I listen to him and what he has to say. He's all about wellness and health. And instead of concentrating on the disease, why don't I just shift my focus over onto wellness and being whole? That's something that works for me. And the other, the last thing I'd say, surround yourself with a community that inspires you to move forward toward positive change. People who believe in you. People who support your dream. And I have a huge black binder of quotes of writers and poets living and, and no longer here at all that just feel my spirit and help me remember what's important. And I share my quotes. And it's amazing because now people, <laughs> the people I sent them to, now they shoot ones back to me. And some of them are really good. It's so much great advice, Elaine, and so inspiring for me personally. Such tangible things that I can hang on to. Just paying better attention to my intentions and praying. And I think an important follow-up to that, too, is meditating. You know, when you pray, you're talking to God. And when you're meditating, you're listening. And when we're listening in the silence, that's where the answers come from. And our bodies as being an ecosystem, I think it's important to, to look at it that way. And doing the things that you love, whether it's baking or gardening or riding a bike or taking a walk, but to slow down, to slow down, take that time to elevate your thought to a higher place. When we fuel our bodies with the things that we love and we listen to our heart, the quality of our life improves and the world around us gets better because we're nourishing ourselves. We're creating more meaning and to surround yourself with community is so important because I've been in recovery for a while now what I learned is that when we start to work in the solutions instead of in the problems the people that don't truly support us or have our best interests at heart they go away naturally and if we can take care of ourselves in the ways that you just described we are really getting out of our own way and I think whatever destiny is meant for us I think we're born with that and the, the sooner we can get out of our way the sooner we'll reach that and the people that are there to support us uh, will come along too. And I think that's just, it's magical. No matter what kind of day we have, we can always choose who, we're, who we put in our corner, right? <laughs> or who we spend our time with. Well, speaking of who you put in your corner, I would say that if, if not for the heroics of your siblings that day when you had your first seizure, the outcome could have been very different, obviously. Do you have any advice about what people can do if they're with somebody who's experiencing a seizure? Is there a certain protocol that people should know about? Before I answer this, let me remind you guys, there's no initials after my name, right? I'm just (laughs) an actor or nurse, but I do know. And I, the only person I have actually been with who experienced a seizure was my own daughter when she was so little, she was experiencing febrile seizures. And I think our our basic instinct to 
protect them from falls and support their head as they're going through it. There's, there's a lot of threat to injury as a result of the actual fall. So I, the, oh, there was one other man who I knew who had something happen and I coached him down to the ground and I just put my hands on either side of his head. That's a grand mal seizure. There's all kinds of other different seizures. So people feel differently and they experience auras in different ways. Some are sights, some are sounds, some are hallucinations even. So that was not my experience. So I'd like to stick pretty much to what I know. John, Patty and Judy, what they did for me when they brought me out of Lake Michigan, they had to do CPR because I wasn't breathing, but... Oh my gosh, yes. They sprang into action like they practiced it in a drill. I, I started now on this, and the spectrum started to do my gratitude sheet, and I started to call them, and I said, you know, have I ever thanked you for saving my life? When I spoke to one of my sisters, she said, yeah, that was a day, Elaine, but it prepared me for the day that I was going to face when my daughter was in the same situation. And I've never known that little end of that story unless I reached out to thank her for for being there for me she became a nurse and the, my brother who saved me who did CPR on me he became an emergency room physician and the amazing thing about that is that he ended up uh, practicing medicine in the emergency room at the largest metropolitan hospital in New Orleans and he was on duty when Hurricane Katrina struck he was the guy that got everybody in the, the emergency room to safety. So it makes me think, well, maybe because they participated in that event and they met their call to courage. The ripples just go out on this yeah. thing. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, it's a ripple effect for sure. So that kind of is what made me get to peace with having this too. I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of good in this. It's just I can't see it right now, but I choose to believe there is a lot of good. And I know that God brings good out of it. And it's the idea that we're all connected. We all share one thing, and, and that is the struggle. And if we can figure out how to help people, the ripple effects are astounding. Yes, the impact is important. We all have an amazing, we can have the, the potential to make such a powerful impact on, on the lives of others. And it, realizing that is both humbling and, well, I think it's inspiring at the same time. Just don't waste the opportunity. That's the message to me that I've learned throughout all this. We never know how these experiences are going to shape us, but we can't escape that they do shape us. Or how they, we really don't understand how they all fit together. I trust that fitting together and like if all these little puzzle pieces coming together up to, up to, you know, my higher power, up to God, but he does, he makes a beautiful picture. I think it's especially difficult for people who are afflicted with something invisible like epilepsy or 
issues of mental health, to not feel embarrassed or ashamed. You had mentioned shame earlier. And I just think the more that we can talk about these things, the less fearful people will be. And where there's less fear and better understanding, there is always more compassion. So I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about how to raise awareness so we can continue to demystify the stigma around epilepsy or these type of silent afflictions. Well, we're doing that right now, aren't we? The thing I think we need to do is feel, you know, say it's not my job to do that. It's, it is my job. And there are opportunities for me. Take today, for example. So leaving, I think our first mistake is to leave to somebody else to do. I mean, there are people who are, who are actually working together, like the International Bureau for Epilepsy has been working together with the World Health Organization in conjunction to bring, it was an actual campaign named Bringing Up Epilepsy Out of the Shadows. And they're doing an amazing work because this is either the third or the fourth most common neurological disease there is. But I think we've got to be the change we want to see in the world, and we're going to be given opportunities to talk about it, just like today, right here, right now. If anybody, do you know anybody who's affected by this? Are you willing to enter into conversation with them about that, or have you asked them, is there any support you need, or is there anything that you want to talk about? The invitation, knowing that the channel is open and that the invitation exists so that there can be dialogue about a topic like this that is makes so many uncomfortable. It is a scary thing. It's a scary thing to both have a seizure and it's a scary thing to witness one. But if we're kind of like you said, like you said we're all in this together, there's no use ignoring the elephant in the living room let's just talk about it and we're doing that today it starts now that's great thank you so much you also mentioned a quote to me one time about pain that your sister judy shared with you and it's helped me quite a lot you said pain that is not transformed is transmitted can you explain this to us well that's an interesting thing i was was mentioning earlier like I, i send quotes out and then People respond and send you quotes back, and that's one of them that I really took to heart, and I put tucked away in the corner of my heart to remember, and I share with people. I think, to me, that means that unresolved issues that weigh us down, I think we take out with us wherever we go, and that our attitudes manifest either into words and actions, and we can't help but, but that's the case. They spill out. We spill out what's inside of us and onto everyone that we interact with. So if I'm full of, it depends. So if I'm, if I'm full of anger, bitterness, or fear when I walk out the door, I am very likely to perceive threats out in the world that really are not that you know much of a problem or... I see threats that aren't even there at all, or I'm likely more likely to take offense, which just perpetuates the bad attitude. But if I face my fears, if I do the work of forgiveness, if I choose to transcend my difficulty, it all gets transformed. 
for me, I give it to God, and it all gets transformed into something the world desperately needs, like tolerance or compassion and patience. I've come to terms with my own humanity role and my own feelings, and it makes a world of difference on how I view and I treat others. Because, you know, feeling judgmental is very, very unpleasant. <laughs> Life is way too short. Yeah. And when we can better understand the struggles that people have, because everybody has a story, everybody has a recovery story, everybody yes. is struggling with something. And if we can... You're all recovering from something. Yeah. And if we can get behind that, it's like when I tell the kids when they get on the bus in the morning, your bus driver has a story. You don't know what just happened to her. Your teachers have a story. We all act out in certain ways. And if we have to work this stuff out or it'll work itself out on us, frankly. <laughs> yeah. And then we work it out on other people and we snap and we get defensive and it just, when we can sidestep that anger because of our community and the things we choose to do deliberately to make our days better, to change our attitude, to elevate our thought, I don't know, then you understand people just a little bit better and that's what I think what perpetuates compassion instead of anger and judgment and one of the things too that I just thought of that actually helps me the most now is this idea of immersing myself into pain feels a little counterintuitive or it did to me at first but instead of ignoring the pain that I feel or the suffering I accept the painful experience I recognize it for what it is and I absorb it I take it in and I hold it there for a moment, and and then I can transform that and dwell in the positive things, all the things that you just described, and the result of that is gratitude and joy, and I can do that instead. And I don't know, I, I think that's how I got through the pain of natural childbirth. Yeah, it's amazing. My mom says it's an Eastern idea that you lean in, because the natural instinct is to run from pain or, or, or turn away or avoid it or, you know, deny it. You know, that's what I did for a long time. It just didn't work. It's, it didn't go anywhere. But to act against your instinct and turn and just accept it and embrace it, to get better, it's like a skill set of dealing with it yeah. and moving through the process. Let's just move it through so it doesn't stay, right? Yeah. You don't want to miss it. You don't want to give it a bedroom. Just take it in, let it pass through. I think it was Winston Churchill said, "If you're going through hell, keep going. So just move through it and don't stay put." But yeah, it does take a certain type of courage to accept that. Yeah, it's funny you just mentioned Winston Churchill too. A friend just emailed me this morning a Winston Churchill quote. He said. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I can put that one in my book, Mo. I'll send that to you. <laughs> Thank well, you. This might be a great time to shift gears a little bit. At the, okay. um, at the end of each show, I do a round of rapid-fire questions. Are you up for that? I'm up for that. Okay, Shoot. here we go. What is your favorite sound? I I love the sound of rain. Favorite smell? Well, that would be bacon and coffee. That's everybody, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's awesome. Favorite food? I love asparagus quiche. I could eat it every week. Well, I'll come over for coffee and bacon. <laughs> <laughs> if you could master one skill right now, what would it be? I'm trying to learn 
how to grow more vegetables. It's not as easy as it, you might think. Who is the most influential person in your life today? Well, that would have to be between, I think, um, Dr. Lee. He wrote How to Eat to Beat Disease and Dr. Mark Hyman, who I mentioned earlier. What's next? What's the impossible task or dream ahead of you that's calling you to be courageous? Well, I, I want to believe in myself and not to be honest to others and useful every day in every small little thing. What do you want to be remembered for? That I made a difference. I want to be remembered for being kind, for being compassionate. I hope that I hope that I can reach somebody with a voice of hope the way that Matt reached me and changed my life. I want to make a difference like that. I don't know how I'm going to make it. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful, Elaine. Well, I think you're going to be an invincible summer to many people today. Oh, thanks, Mo. Thank you. I'm so grateful that you could be here. I, I actually have a niece who was recently diagnosed with epilepsy, who I love very much, as we all do. So this has helped me tremendously, too. But, you know, one of the things I also realized when we were talking was that we can all get to a point in our lives where we can forgive ourselves now for what we didn't know then. And... Yeah, It seems like because you've embraced your adversity and turned it, I think, into one of your greatest assets that gratitude has been the result and helping others is now the gift. So thank you so much for having the courage to make yourself so vulnerable today and to talk about this. This is a fantastic opportunity. If not for you, I would have never done this. So thank you again. My pleasure. My pleasure. And for anyone listening... The mission of the International Bureau for Epilepsy, IBE, is to improve the social conditions and quality of life for people who suffer with epilepsy and for those who care for them. From Argentina, Bangladesh, Brazil, and Bulgaria to the Western Pacific Islands, it has chapters in the United States and all over the world. To learn more about IBE, you can go to ibe-epilepsy.org. And if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to start a dialogue in the comments section at biteofcourage.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, be daring, and take a bite of courage. See you next week. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to Bite of Courage. If you'd like to learn more about my guests or you'd like to leave a comment, please go to biteofcourage.com or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to check out my blog, humormewithmo.com, where I write about finding humor in life's absurdities. Until next time, be bold, be brave, be daring, and take a bite of courage. This is a Trio production, all rights reserved.